I'm going to talk about a different but related field of historical world knowledge. Uh, moving away a little from the emphasis on sacred history, salvation history, that Lizzie has been talking about here, I'm going to pick up more on uh, a theme that was prominent in the contributions of Lizzie herself and of Maureen Iwani to uh, the last study in this series on the Book of Ballymote. And that's the historical world knowledge that revolves around synchronism, co In other words, the matching of events in world history to supposedly simultaneous events in Irish history or pseudo-history. Lizzie says in her chapter, which, I, which she's kindly sent me an advanced version of about Ballymote, that uh, the synchronistic texts in that manuscript uh, give a background a legitimacy, weight, and chronological framework for the more prominent concerns of the Book of Ballymote, namely Irish origins, history, genealogy, political relationships, language, and geography. I think that's absolutely true, but the poems that I will present today uh, refuse to support that kind of foregrounding of Ireland. They're about the study of world history as an end in itself. And I will try to suggest that some, at least, of the law of synchronism serves by a kind of analogy to help to make kingship define national identity as well as vice versa. So, the science of synchronism. Now, the pivotal person in this science is uh, Ninus, son of Bailus, as in the, the poem uh, that, uh, edited by Lizzie from the Book of Ballymote, Nín MacBail Rawanari. Uh, this figure, uh, since from Herodotus onwards, is the first holder of Assyrian kingship. Uh, and in the words of, of, of that poem in Ballymote, Caithri and Dovan Gajilish, the, the first king of the world, legitimately. Um, in Ballymote, uh, in, in the Iwania itself, we have uh, a prose text uh, related to that poem, and also itself shared with Ballymote. Uh, Adam Primus Pater Fuit, which you see here. And this starts with Adam. It goes to his children down to the flood, and then it gets to the bit where uh, Ninus becomes first king of the world. Uh, so you can see it there on the handout. Uh, Asser was the son of Sem. His son was Baal. His son was Nin or Ninus. He was the first king of the world. And then, this is the, the segue. Uh, in the time of his son, Ninias, Partalone came to Ireland. So the first of the invasions of Ireland, the occupations of Ireland from the Dalgawala tradition, enmeshed with uh, the history of the Assyrian kings. Now, uh, where does this science of synchronism come from? Well, to understand it, we have to go back to its authoritative Latin source, the Chronicle of Eusebius Jerome of which you see a 9th century Reichenau manuscript here. So this is as close as we can get to the kind of copy of Jerome that an Irish peregrinus would have been studying if he had got past the librarian. Um, now, Jerome does something in the Chronicle which had never been done before. He arranges history into parallel columns. Okay. And each column begins at the point where that nation first had a king. The first nation to have a king, as we saw, 
was, Ninus, was, was the Assyrians with Ninus son of Baalis. Uh, so that begins the chronicle. And then as new kingships arise, uh, they each have their column, if you like, continuing down right across the two open pages. Uh, as each empire falls, as the Assyrians, as we'll see, eventually fall, their column stops. A new uh, ruling race takes over and gradually they all uh, fall until you finally end up with just the Romans. Uh, so in the latter parts of the chronicle, there's just one column for the Romans and that will take us up to the end of the Sixth Age and Doomsday. And going along in the second column is the Hebrews, events from the biblical history of the Hebrews, but that's just one of many. Now, how did this get into Irish lore, probably in about the 9th century. There's two ways of thinking about it. One is that the so-called, the construct known as the Irish World Chronicle, was composed by taking a chronicle of events in Irish pseudo-history, probably based on Easter tables to begin with, and adding in bits and pieces out of the world knowledge of the great kingdoms from Jerome. The other way of thinking about it, the other way of positing its origin, uh, is one that is preserved in uh, the manuscript Lord 610 in Oxford. Now this is a late medieval manuscript, but it probably preserves uh, the layout of its much earlier exemplar. And what's done here is something, uh, I'll say, much bolder, much more assertive. You have your columns out of Jerome's Chronicle. So here you have the Assyrians going down the left-hand column, then the Hebrews with simultaneous events. So each horizontal line tells you this is a particular year since creation. The Hebrews going down the middle, but we're added in in the right. Okay, so the synchronisms are enacted in the column of Irish events and Irish kings going down the right-hand side. So... What you see there in Lord 610 is a bit like a graphic equivalent for historiography to the juxtaposed languages in Zanus Cormac, for example, or the, again, the geographical mesh that you get in that famous Dinhanicus poem where the Boyne joins up, joins up with all the great rivers of the world. So in terms of that Dinhanicus poem, you can get from the Boyne to the Tigris, shall I say, in terms of the languages you can match across between the three sacred languages and Irish, and here you can match across, say, from the Battle of Moitara to the War of Troy, which are synchronized in many of these texts. Now, it's easy to assume that this activity uh, was an archaizing or backward-looking one when compared with what would have been going on in mainstream European intellectual life in, say, the 10th and 11th centuries, when it was at its height. And the best corrective against that belief, the belief that this, is, this Irish activity is marginal, the best corrective is the case of Maelbrigia of Moville, uh, or Marianus Scotus, as he called himself, uh, who compiled a world chronicle, uh, fitted into this, 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 this Irish synchronistic lore, uh, as a hermit in Mainz in the early 1070s. Now, Mwelbrija is most famous because an autograph manuscript by him and his amanuensis, 
is preserved in the Vatican, which as well as the, the Latin lore of the main chronicle, has Irish king lists and also Irish marginalia, of which there's a famous example here on the left. Uh, it's pleasant for us today, Omwell Bridge, the, the hermit in the enclosure of Mainz and so on, on this day in the year in which fell Diarmuid, king of Leinster. So he's identifying the time of writing by the death of uh, Diarmuid MacMill the Moe, who we'll see later. Now, there's your Irish hermit looking back in Ireland with his grey eye, but it's easy to forget that that chronicle was copied and recopied across Europe and across England right through the Middle Ages and was such an authoritative text that it made its way into the early decades of the print era. What you see here is the, on the right-hand side, uh, is the title page of the first printed edition at Baal in 1559, Marianne Scotus. Uh, how many other Gaelic-speaking intellectuals made it into the mainstream in the Gothenburg era like that? So it, I resist the suggestion that what the Irish uh, chronologists are doing here uh, should be seen in any sense as marginal or as secondary to the mainstream of European thinking. And that's what I will try to uh, take as my text, as it were, my, my preacher's text, uh, as I turn to these uh, remarkable synchronistic poems. Uh, I'll take two which are preserved in the Book of Iwania. The first and better known of these synchronistic poems uh, is by Gilakwevon, uh, Anolod which is uh, edited by Peter Smith in his uh, 2007 edition. And uh, I just want to give you a sense of how Gilakwevon's method works from just three quatrains that I've, I've put there. I'll just read uh, Peter's translation. Uh, the first one there, Der Silas was lord of the territories when Solomon, Solomon endeavoured to build his temple. In the middle of the reign of the fair man, the Gaels came to Ireland. So, Dersilus is an Assyrian king. He is coordinated with Solomon building the temple amongst the Hebrews, and at the same time, the sons of Meal are hitting our shores. So, what he's enacting through that verse is effectively those three columns that I showed you from Lord 610. Now, all of that is deep in pseudo-history, half-imagined antiquity. But the pattern continues through the successive institution of these different national kingships, through their fall, uh, into the Sixth Age, when, as I told you, the Romans are the only column. And here, Gilakwevon does something that... Uh, the Franks, for example, in their Frankish national histories tend not to do, rather than just continuing the chronicle on, he continues with the synchronisms. He continues with the correspondences. So, for example, the death of uh, Colin Kille, of the son of Phelim and Aona, is coordinated with the death of Pope Gregory. And he takes it all the way through a sequence of history up to his own time, which he measures importantly from the birth of Christ, two and seven tens plus a thousand from Christ's birth, whoever you compute it, uh, to this year, though I may say it, in which Dirmwid Durgen fell. And that's the same Dirmwid that Mael Bridger was using to date himself with. 
Um, now, you can see a, a certain mathematical elegance, an elegance of exactitude and correlation in the way the poet sets up such a precise relationship between his own Gaelic identity and the great events of world history. This is much harder in the other set of poems in our manuscript that I am going to look at, which, as we'll see, are also fixed by Dyrmwyd Dorkin. Uh, and these are my main theme today. And this is the poem, or set of poems, Reidigdom Niv, which is ascribed to Flan Manistruk. You can see that Om uh, Kushin himself, who, who wrote it, that he has written the ascription to Flan Manistruk at the top uh, of, the, of the page there. Uh, the poem, which contains roughly 294 quatrains, right? So it's a massive accomplishment. It's preserved in three manuscripts, uh, Iwanya, Lekin, and um, Ora, uh, manuscript D43, also in this academy. And it's a set of poems, I will say, rather than a single poem, I think it's better to think of it, all about the national kingships of the ancient world. Now, the poem was poems were partly edited uh, by Sean McCart. That was his last publication uh, on the basis of the, uh, the copy in, in D, in D43, uh, which is a rather later 16th century manuscript. Um, and as I will show, there are, there are issues, there are problems with his edition because it was unfinished. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and, and suggest directions that study of these, of, this, of these poems should take. So let's see how it works. Uh, after the opening invocation, the poem goes into the kingship of the Assyrians, the first left-hand column of Eusebius Jerome. So it begins in strict fidelity to Jerome with the taking of kingship by Ninus, son of Belus. And this is the first sort of substantive verses of the poem. The kings of the Assyrians, before all, took the communal kingship the curly-haired descendants with bright sense of Assur, son of Sem, son of Noah. Nin, son of famous Baal, however it be, of them was the first who took the kingship. This one man from God possessed all Asia, except India. Now as the 300-odd quatrains continue, the poems do not set out explicitly to synchronize world events with Irish events. In fact, there's just one Irish event in the whole sequence, the coming of Patrick. Now, interestingly, uh, when Flan Manistuk was composing that, the last of the sequence of poems, he was working from Bede's Chronica Maiora. And Bede, at that point, has the coming of Palladius to Ireland. So Flan has replaced it with Patrick while following his authoritative Latin source. So, what then are the poems about? If they do more than simply help to provide background and authority to the Irish lore that constitutes, I guess the most familiar, the central part of this manuscript, then one way to think about their purpose or their, their, their excellence uh, is to look at the way the poet or the imitator who continued at the very end, uh, how he 
describes the achievement at the very end. Uh, I have here my own uh, tentative uh, edition of the last few verses, based mostly on the Iwania copy. Um, there are a couple of mistakes in the translation on your handout, which I've kind of hope corrected here. Look at how he ends it. Each prince who has clear rough force, who is called high king of the world, that's an important phrase, R3 and Dovin, from Ninus to enduring Leo of the Shields, that's the Eastern Emperor Leo in the 600s, the learned Ayanlan, the learned one and only Flan Manistruk, computed them. Uh, and there's obviously there's a there's an assertion of triumph in that very daring use of the prefixing Ayan there with his own name. Keen sweet Flan carved the judgment's force or something like that. The smooth sage, the smooth Ferlean of Monaster Boyce, his voice clarified through its work how to make straight the time of every king. And then he has his dating clause at the end, where he gives us the kings who are in Ireland at his time. This is a time of, of disarray in the late, 11th, the late the mid 11th century. Uh, Conqueror, smooth haired of the wounds, egg, garbeth, uh, hardy, Dermot or Dermot Durgen. That's the same figure again, Dermot MacMail the Mole, Donica, the two Niles, and so on. Those are the kings of our time. Uh, what then are these poems about? If Apart from that last part, they refuse to be treated as explicitly concerned with matching Irish events to world events, then how do they work? Well, when you read the poems, uh, with Jerome's chronicle in front of you, the principle of arrangement becomes obvious. At each point, Flan's central narrative is the regnal years of the king of the nation that was then supreme in the world. Okay? Or, to put it another way, the nation that fits into the sequence of conquests that will lead to Rome's dominion in the Sixth Age. So, first he has the Assyrians. Then they're overthrown by the Medes. They're overthrown by the Persians. Finally, the Persians are conquered by Alexander the Great. The successor kingdoms that come after Alexander and are made out of his empire include the Egypt of the Ptolemies, and finally Egypt is overthrown by the Romans, and here you are in Monaster Boyce in about 1050. Now this relates uh, to the sequence the, based, on the book, based on the prophecy in Daniel that Lizzie alluded to earlier on, but it's not identical to it, and Daniel is mentioned once but only as the guy who referred to one of the individual kings involved. It's interesting that Daniel is not quoted as the, uh, the authority for any of this. It's primarily concerned with kingship, with regnal years, rather than explicitly with salvation. Now, it's extraordinary, elegant, and precise poetry. Uh, but can we see, by way of analogy, a contemporary Irish relevance in this? Given that the poems define each nation by a single succession of kings, there is an inviting analogy with the way uh, the king lists in the annals uh, give a single sequence of kings with the title King of Ireland. That's one of the, one, one of the central assertions of the annals in the, in the, from, 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 from at least the 9th century onward, the notion that there's a single kingship rising over all the smaller kingships. Uh, that analogy is attractive. 
Um, and we see it explicitly in Whale Breach's Chronicle and in the Annals of Inish Fallon in particular. But it remains only implicit. Uh, similarly, our poems beg to be compared with Flann's more famous poems on the Inéal lineages. But uh, those poems uh, are very different in emphasis. They emphasize bloodline. They're always talking about the seed of the Inéal, uh, whereas the poems about world kingship do not do that especially because most of the kings of each individual ancient nation in these poems, they're not necessarily related to each other by blood at all. In particular, the Roman emperors after the first few are not related to each other. This means that there's an interesting slippage in the poems, and it's characteristic really of all the synchronistic literature. A slippage from the concept of such and such a king being the most eminent of kings, towards him being the supreme king. So in the piece I showed you earlier on from the end, he's talking about, I've told you all the kings who were called Ardri and Dobbin, who were called high king of the world. But if you've been reading your Jerome, or if you've been reading the Annals of Inish Fallon, you know perfectly well that none of them were in charge of the whole world. They weren't high king in that, in that later early modern sense, uh, though they may, in some sense, be preeminent or foremost. So that slippage, it's hard to tell whether it's a persuasive strategy or just a manifestation of common assumptions and thought patterns, but it's definitely there. Now, trying to pick up on that theme and see how far we can push it, uh, I think we can get closer to Flan's strategy by taking a closer look at his use of sources. And that's what I'm going to try and, and work on now. Now, it's been clear since Thurnaisen that this, this, this set of poems, that the lore in it, much of it goes back uh, to Jerome. As I, see, as, I, as I showed you, that's the basic structure. Much especially in the last bits of the sequence goes back to Bede's Chronica Maiora. Yet there's loads of other details as well that seem to echo things out of other canonical late antique historical sources. Orosius, Justin, Augustine, Isidore, uh, the historical books of the Bible, and so on. Now, MacArthur, when he did his pioneering edition, worked like this. As you can see, this is one of the translation pages uh, where he, on, on the Irish page, he puts a, a textual apparatus, and on the translation page, he, put, page, he puts a source apparatus. And he finds bits and pieces out of loads and loads of historians. Bits, on this page, for example, you've got bits out of Erosius, bits out of Josephus. He's seeing things that are echo, echoing stuff out of the Book of Kings, the Books of Kings, Kings 4, and so on. And there are pages where there are six and seven ancient sources clustering. Now, if that's the index to Flan's method, uh, then he comes across something of an intellectual magpie which may have some truth in it, but it may not. Uh, the opposite approach would be to say that he took it all out of the Irish World Chronicle, just happened to be in a fuller edition than any, fuller, fuller version than in any of the surviving fragmentary manuscripts that we have. Now, I'm not satisfied with either of those approaches, so I tried as an experiment uh, a different approach. I took as a test case the first poem on the kingship of the Assyrians, uh, and I picked out going through it, I uh, basically underlined everything that you could see staring at you from Jerome's Chronicle. Uh, 
and everything that you could see staring at you from bead. And then I started picking out things that couldn't be explained by that or by Flan's use of any of the standard late antique historians. Uh, so what happened when I did this was the two oddities stood out. And the first was a small thing, was the death of Ninus. Flan says that he was defeated by an arrow uh, out there abroad when he was sacking a city or sacking this city. I couldn't find any source that says that. And uh, 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 McCart notes the same thing in his apparatus. He couldn't find it either. Just a small detail. It's odd. The second one was a bigger thing. That when the last king of the Assyrians falls, the poem continues with a strange segue. It says that at the same time as this, the Egyptians, the Egyptian king, was attacking the Scythians out in the east. An account of the Scythians then leads all in the space of a few quatrains uh, to a further account of how the race of the Amazons in Irish Kikpashka, the, uh, the burnt breasts, arose out of the race of the Scythians. And there are many quatrains then with details about the Amazons. Now the materials there can be traced ultimately to Justin and Erosius, but uh, it's gathered in completely different contexts. There seems to be no way of motivating uh, why Flan would have put it in here. So, uh, fortuitously, uh, with help from uh, Jacopo Bisani and uh, my, my graduate student, Anne Hurley, uh, we stumbled on a text which gives you the detail about Ninus getting killed by an arrow. Now, this text is uh, what's called the Bamberg Ancient History, right? Uh, and it's a monumental, huge manuscript, probably made at the Frankish monastery of Halberstadt in, in about 1000 AD, with a compilation of historical texts in it. And the first, uh, after some geographical material, the first is this account of the Assyrians. There's Ninus, and he gets killed by an arrow. And as it continues over the next couple of folios, it segues next to the Scythians, and from there to the Amazons. Now, the wording is different, but the sequence is exactly the same over a couple of folios, just as in Flans verses. And this is a prestige, Frankish prestige monastic manuscript of about 1000 AD, so 50 years before Flans' time, and there's only one copy of this text surviving. Now, I think that's too much to be merely coincidental. Um, just as a start, just as a hypothesis, the fact that those two correspondences, those two unique things are there in exactly the same context, and when he gets to the Scythians and the Amazons, there are precise correspondences down, for example, to further synchronisms. Uh, both the Bamberg history and Flan uh, coordinate Penthesilea, Queen of the Amazons, with the Trojan War. So there's multiple correspondences there. And I offer the hypothesis, at least, that Flan, as well as uh, Jerome's Chronicle, or the Irish World Chronicle edition of it, 
uh, and as well as Bede's Chronica Majora, had in front of him a text uh, which was very like what we see here in the Bamberg history. So if he was working in that way, following this clue, what kind of codex, what kind of source might he have been looking at? Well, if his source was like Bamberg 3, here's what Bamberg 3 has in it. Right? It starts with a series of texts about ancient kingships. Okay? That's where our stuff about the Assyrians, the Scythians, and the Amazons goes in. And that goes on to the Trojan War and Aeneas. There's then an excerpted Roman history based on Eutropius. There's then a series, and this is the main bulk of the manuscript, of origin narratives in Latin of the new Germanic-speaking nations uh, of Northwest Europe. In other words, the Franks and their neighbors. There are three Alexander texts, the life of Alexander the Great, a text on the peoples of India and uh, Alexander's correspondence, the Bede's ecclesiastical history, and finally, there's a sex aetates mundi. Different from the Irish ones, it's based directly on, on, on Bede's version, but it is a sex aetates mundi. And there's also scattered through it shorter texts of encyclopedic world knowledge, mostly based on Isidore of Seville. In other words, the curriculum of world knowledge in this collection is closely echoed in the great Irish manuscripts from Lawanahidra onward. The six ages of the world give you the basic historical scheme of the history of salvation. The succession of kingships frames ancient history. And this gives context for histories of indigenous peoples. So taking the kind of transnational leap that I'm suggesting, uh, the stuff in the Bamberg manuscript about the Gitai, the Franks, the English, the other Germanic nations, uh, is the equivalent in Germanic-speaking Francia of the texts that are in the Irish manuscripts centered on the Liao Gawala and the Liao Bratnach and so on. Similarly, note the prominence of Alexander in the Bamberg manuscript. It's very suggestive that Walter MacGerald has recently shown that the Irish Alexander, which is based on exactly the same materials as you see there, was uh, on linguistic grounds the very first of the classical, classicizing narrative texts produced in Middle Irish. If this is even vaguely right, it suggests that the project of compiling world knowledge that went on in Flan's generation was entirely in tune with what was being done in learned monastic culture in Francia in the same, or, or indeed the previous generation. Even though, of course, the Irish texts are different in detail, not only because they're in an entirely different vernacular language, but the themes converge precisely, and the gathering of this material into monumental manuscript compilations is the, the use of cultural capital that's shared between these cultures as well. In that sense, I suggest that the project of those who composed the synchronisms was perfect, and, and related works was perfectly in tune with the international trends of their time, yet still unique in their way. Above all, in today's case, because of the unique aesthetic represented by the work of poets like Flan and Gilakwevon. There is no poetic tradition in the compilation of precise numerical historical lore, anything like this, anywhere else in Europe. 
so much for the 11th century, but notice the state of hand. If this approach helps us to make sense of Flan's generation or the Dawanahidra generation, well, what about the 1390s? And I will only suggest here that I think the next stage of this inquiry has been uh, very eloquently suggested by Bernie Cunningham just earlier on today. Uh, Richard II was the first English king to gather together an authoritative royal library of canonical texts in the vernacular language in French and in English about world history. And if you look at the collection of manuscripts that survives from his library, its themes all seem to suggest uh, the themes that are, that, 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 that are contained in the compilation of world knowledge in manuscripts like the Book of Iwanya. Donico Coron suggested a few years back that the rise of library culture in late medieval Europe may have been something of a spark or a transnational uh, suggestive agent in the development of the culture of canonical manuscript making in the late 14th, 15th century in Ireland. He talked about the Italian Renaissance, but I think we can see the model much closer to hand in figures like Richard II, the kings of France, the royal dukes of Burgundy, uh, and the higher gentry who were imitating them, slightly lower down on the scale in France and England and elsewhere on the continent. So I hope that maybe that approach can help us to make a little more sense of the transnational context of the compilation and canonization of these texts in manuscripts like the Book of Iwania. Thank you very much.